0: Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. While we focus a lot on investors in this podcast, ultimately it's about the companies they invest in. Today, we have a double bill of interviews as we speak with the founders of two impact companies and their investors. First up is Weeding Tech with Boundary Capital, followed by GoThrift and OnePlanet Capital. We get a great perspective of how the companies have been built and why the fund managers think there will be great investments. If you join the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all the podcast services following the link in the show notes. If you have any suggested future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So our first guest today are Lee De Montignac, who is Executive Officer at Weeding Tech, and Dan Summers, who is managing partner at Boundary Capital. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen.
1: Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having us.
0: So some of you may remember Dan was uh, with us back on episode twenty four which was about eighteen months ago, we was delighted to have him back, but leo is he tells me he's brand new to podcasting.
1: I am indeed yes, my first time
0: so we 're going to put the pressure right on him straight away by asking him to give us his little elevator pitch on what is weeding tech
1: Sure, so weeding tech manufactures and supplies the world 's leading herbicide free weed control systems municipal markets
0: okay and herbicide free sounds fabulous how do you make something like that herbicide free because it's something we all use
1: great question so we use hot water we're a thermal technology we kill weeds using the heat in hot water and we cover the hot water in an organic foam and the foam acts like a thermal blanket basically trapping all that heat in the hot water for long enough for the heat to pass through into the weed and either kill it with one application or making sure that with two to three applications a year, you keep weeds under control. So it's a thermal kill. Hot water is our active ingredient. We have no toxic chemicals like many traditional chemical herbicides.
0: Excellent. And presumably you have to Penetrate this underground a little bit or can you just sort of do it from the surface just from the surface?
1: So one of the reasons why FoamStream our technology is so efficient is that you can use it just on the surface And because you get so much of the heat trapped in the hot water under the foam the heat basically translocates down through the weed into the root structure and causes sufficient damage there to either kill kill the weed or make sure two to three applications a year is sufficient. So absolutely you can treat on the surface, but the key is getting the heat down into the root structure.
0: That all sounds
2: excellent. So Dan, when did you come across Weeding Tech? Came across uh, Leo and Weeding Tech a few months ago, probably four or five now, and invested two or three months ago, I think in May or June uh, from memory. It's a very interesting product technology. We had a couple of laps on it, um, as, as you do, trying to get our heads around it, and particularly as we're impact investors. Uh, I guess we can talk a bit about that later, about the journey, but, um, yeah, delighted to be on board.
0: Mm-hmm. Excellent. So as you mentioned, this kind of impact investment, what
2: makes this an impact investment for you? So, yeah, you might recall that our impact investing criteria, firstly, we're a technology investor. We always have been, we always will be. And we look for disruptive technologies that change and accelerate the way we do things to generate impact in one of our six themes. Uh, This ticked a couple of themes for us uh, in terms of environmental and also efficiency in particular. There's also some, some healthcare benefits there. We looked at the size of the prize. We are looking at at least touching 100 million lives. That's our criteria for impact and Leo and I had couple of very interesting discussions obviously resulting in the right answer so to speak if you like for us which is that it does have the capability to to impact that many lives the 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 herbicides that Leah referred to earlier are terrible and there are some companies making them that have frankly been covering up the terribleness for a long period of time Uh, and these are Will become, I think, scandals. There's a lot of legislative changes, but what we loved about it was it wasn't reliant on legislation. People were moving in that direction anyway for environmental impact reasons, just doing the right thing. And the product, the MVP, at the price point and at the the sort of market fit that they've managed to get at this point in three continents was the uh, with a, with a clear exit plan and a great team was you know, it, it ticked
0: all our boxes. That's excellent. So some of the things that Dan hinted about there are probably worth digging into. So I've got to ask a little bit about the journey in the sense of, you know, if, if hot water's so good or are doing this, why do we have weed killers? How did your technology sort of come about?
1: Really good question. And I will um, I'll try and keep this brief. So if I'm going into too much detail, please, um, please, please prod me and I can try and speed it up. But fundamentally, for a long time, the world didn't think we needed an alternative. And that's because for many decades, since traditional chemical weed killers like Roundup were released, everyone thought they were completely safe. They were relatively cheap and easy to use. And there was no concrete evidence to actually suggest that they caused serious problems. And it's only really been in the last sort of 10 to 20 years that a very significant amount of third-party information has come to light that shows these traditional chemical herbicides are actually not safe at all. They're linked to a number of really serious issues. They're linked to health conditions in people, things like Parkinson's, birth defects, and stuff like that. They're contaminating the water tables that we all drink from, And they're also killing the nutrients in the soil. At a time when the world needs to become more efficient at how we feed people, we need to be not damaging the soil we're completely dependent on. And so all this information came out and we felt that someone needed to provide a solution, that there's clearly a problem. We should start relying far less on these chemicals and actually stop their use if we can. But no one had actually come up with a viable alternative at that point. And we felt there was a really great opportunity for phone stream, And that's mm. why we developed it. So it, no, there was no other solution before because the world hadn't needed it. But now as that information has come to light, and as the public appetite has become keener and keener than ever before on safe bits of technology, a need was created in the market. So although we were actually one of the first movers with Foamstream, we're seeing lots of new companies come into the market all of the time at the minute. There's various competitive technologies to us, ranging from hot water systems to burners to electricity, and there's a really fast-growing but quite early market that's set up where well, we're really well positioned as first mover. So it's exciting. You know, you want to see a market where new players are joining every day. That shows there's a price to go after. And I'm sure we'll see a lot more over the coming years enter the market too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean that, that that's kind of a double-edged sword, I think, from, from your perspective, in the sense that you have a market that it's nice to get that confirmation, but presumably competition is also um, a challenge as well. So... So are you looking at domestic or sort of commercial sort of applications here?
1: So at the minute, we're B2B. We sell typically to large landowners or operators who are responsible for managing urban bits of land. So typical customers are municipalities, schools, universities, utility companies, those kind of folks. That's our core market at the moment across North America, Europe, and Australasia. But once the company is sufficiently profitable, we want to take our core technology and move it into other markets where there's a great opportunity for it. And one of those is the one you just mentioned, the residential market. So many countries in Europe have actually already banned the residential use of chemicals like glyphosate. And people need a solution. And we're going to see more of that happen. And with some development, we can develop Foamstream for use in the domestic market, and open up a new and very significant opportunity for the company there.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that all sounds very promising, Dan. When 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 you, you looked at this, how how did you sort of validate the technology and you have know, come to the conclusion that this is something you were comfortable with? Because one of the dangers I think people worry about with investors is like, okay, here's this brand new technology. It claims is better than everything everything else. Does it work? And is it?
2: Yeah. So. Uh, there's there's many many levels to that. The two that I'll pick out are technology and product. Yes, we're technology investors. There's a big difference between investing in technology and investing in a product that's a technology that's got technology in it. And there was a round in this company from investors who uh, a few years ago that thought the inflection point had come. And you know we've done this in our time experience. You know investors do. Hindsight's always a wonderful thing. Twenty twenty hindsight, and you know, Leo and the team, I thought thought they had it. Then there's been a period, Leo. I think you won't mind me saying that we weren't investors in the last few years, where you have where the markets changed and improved. I think, but also where you guys have got the right price point, the right roadmap. You've got some patents in place. You've got product market fit. You know, to use a, a phrase, and you know, for us, that's a really important moment. And some of those investors. That invested before that time left out of the sort of if you like the um the few years of development that i've talked about they've joined back in with us uh, at this round and and we found that comforting and i think vice versa they found our involvement comforting and see all the due diligence that we and they have done right so there's kind of you know the companies go through evolutionary stages some of that's market dependent some of that's internally generated and what we see is 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 we believe good timing you know Hindsight's going to write the script for this one if we play this podcast in three years time and and we're saying actually we didn't get it quite right then well you know but we fundamentally believe in this market that it will happen we believe there's a clear pathway to exit it's a product no longer a technology but the technology is very important to us and the patents and the roadmap leo's hinted at a few things we may not have time to go into it but we're very very excited about some of the developments they have and then there's this kind of clear pathway to exit business which is worth spelling out because we need to get out of any investment we get into. And this is you know, something that is more easy to say than do uh, for our investors. And uh, Leo can can talk, if you want, about some of the conversations. Obviously, some of them are confidential, but that he's already having with some of the distribution partners. And it plays to this, this thing about competition. The big players in this industry, some of the big brand names of, of garden and agricultural equipment uh, manufacturers, are interested in this space. They're already partnering with Weeding Tech and there is a credible pathway to exit. So, you know, competition stimulates this. If there wasn't, then we wouldn't be here. So hopefully that brings a few themes why we think the timing's right and why we invested now and why things are coming together. And they've got runs on the board. You know, they've got a credible amount of revenue in the UK, in Europe, and in north america north america being the more the most exciting one and elsewhere yeah so there's a couple of things in there i, w- I want to follow up on and, and
0: one is the sort of the product or manufacturing side so 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 coming back to leo you're creating a physical product and and substantial machinery finding manufacturing and sorting out quality manufacturing is not a trivial thing how have you gone about that and 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 you know is is this made in the uk is it and supply chains are obviously things that everyone's worried about just now.
1: Yeah, great, great question. As you'd imagine, we went through very comprehensive due diligence to identify the right assembly partners to outsource our manufacturing to. And where that led us a few years ago was to a fantastic couple of partners in France. Um, ironically, both outside the Nantes area, who we have been partnering ever since. And it's served us incredibly well. They're close to home. It's easy to service the European market from there. It's been easy to service the UK market. And it's a reasonable hub for North America, though, as we grow and as our North American business develops further, we'll probably need to have something in place in North America. So we found ourselves in France Obviously, the world has changed significantly Uh since we originally partnered with them. There's been a little event called Brexit and various other things. So as a hedge against Brexit and the complexities that brings, as well as currencies and fluctuation there, we're currently looking to appoint a UK partner so we can just kind of de-risk a little bit from being fully based in France. As I mentioned, a little further down the road, We'll find a partner in North America there as well because clearly we don't want to be spending lots of money and time shipping machines from Europe to North America when they could be made locally.
2: If I can just add, Brian, quickly that we also – there's a key member of Leo's team that they brought in who's had a lot of experience in this area. And you know before you've got an MVP – sorry, minimal Viable Product for the listeners who do not familiar with that or Minimum Viable Proposition – It's kind of like a key moment of scalability in in, um, the history will judge, but that is perceived before an MVP, this kind of person is semi-redundant question mark, but with their MVP and this person and the team that Leo's building with all of that, they've got the capability and experience because it's not just about supply, as you mentioned quality, you know, doing this thing repeatedly. It's almost from, you know, to, to make the business a business as usual, you know, to make it Mm-hmm. We want. I mean, it's still a very exciting business, but almost to de-excitingify it, you know, we don't want a hairy scare, and we want a nice, steady, fast-growing business, and um, and that's what Leo's. I don't think the works complete yet, but we see we saw a really good pathway there. Yeah. No. Thanks, Dan. Agreed. It's. I mean, it's. There's
1: a lot of complexity to manage, and you need the right people in place to do that properly. And as Dan mentioned, we have a fantastic CTO who developed the tech and it has got it to this point now where it's ready for real volume. We've got that product market fit right. And we recently brought in a fantastic COO who can really manage the internal operation and all the incredibly complicated logistics really effectively. So all the infrastructure is in place now to build the machines we need, to build them at the right time, to make sure we don't do things like tie up too much cash in inventory, But also to make sure we can respond to dealers and end users' demand quickly and effectively.
0: Yeah, and and one question, and and this is kind of almost for both of you that that follow, you know. So, so one thing that investors in this in in EIS are often very concerned about when they come to product or or hardware businesses is that you you end up tying up a lot of cash in building inventory, building stock, whatever, and these makes these businesses a lot more capital intensive. Uh, which has both funding demands and management demands that are just fundamentally different from the software businesses. What's your perspective on on you know on on managing these and how attractive does this make the business, or or what problems does it create?
2: Shall I go, Leo, in terms of investors' perspective first? Yeah, please do. I think it's kind of probably slightly aimed this way first. When we looked at this and took those very very key considerations into account uh, we looked at the closeness we were to profitability because if the business is at profitability then the financial engineering is still not trivial for a small business particularly Mm -hmm. with with the market as it is but it is a different ball game to funding a venture business which is what we do and And
0: profitability is that on unit cost or is that the overall company
2: well TBD right profit is not a nailed down thing but uh, in the eyes of let's say a lender or in a you know an invoice discounter or in the eyes of another funder or whatever and everyone's got their different sort of metrics right but you know there is a clear pathway towards profitability again it's sort of confidential and it's up to leo what he wants to say on that and the second thing is that when we looked at all of the cash flow considerations and the margins again it's up to leo to say but you know there is a razor blade Gillette kind of model sort of thing, uh, other razor companies are available, where the foam is profitable and very profitable and increasingly so, right? Because it's patented, there's clever stuff in it, but I don't think anyone's going to mind me saying that the majority of what it is, is is H2O. And therefore, you know, the machines are obviously being made more efficiently and effectively, etc. there's development. So, you know, the, the model financially stacks up and, and is maturing enough for us to see a pathway where, it's not a venture capital play forever. You know, it becomes a normal, in inverted commas, growing SME, and, and, that's, and that's what we're betting on. Now, you know, if we're slightly wrong, it'll require another big round of VC, or even if, you know, even if it's right for the right reasons, even if we're right. But we we, we saw that clear um, sort of shift um, in our sights. Let's, let's put it that way. Yeah, I think if I may just add a little bit, Dan's
1: raised a really important point, which is one of the really attractive things about the weeding tech business model, both actually for us, but critically for our dealers, which is really important in getting them on board to fuel our growth, is that not only do we sell the machinery and make good margin from that, but once we acquire a customer, they need to come back and buy foam for the lifetime of that machine. So you generate a really strong recurrent revenue stream that becomes very forecastable and very good for the company, and it actually becomes a very significant business in itself once that installed base of machinery gets to a high enough level.
2: I'd say it's a sticky revenue stream, but I don't want to be too punny about it just in case. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm, that before, Dan. I'm, going to, I'm going to steal that for future <laughs>
0: Um, And the other challenge I I, wanted to pick up on was sort of distribution, and particularly the internationalizing. So, Leo, you mentioned you're going into into the States. That's typically a challenge for a very small company and a resource-constrained company to do. We've had a couple of people on the podcast in the past talking about how they do this in different ways and different models that people do. How have you internationalized this business?
1: Yeah, so we wanted to keep the main organization very lean but we wanted to give ourselves the ability to scale very quickly and at relatively low cost. So our route to market is via channel. So overseas, we sell through machinery dealers. So we look for machinery dealers with existing great businesses who service the customer base we want to access. Now, Typically, the best kind of match for weeding tech is companies who sell Toro machinery, don't know if you know them, but they sell big grass cutting I don't know. Equipment, et cetera. Very large North American business turnover, a couple of billion dollars a year. Uh, we like John Deere dealers, and we also like Kubota dealers. So we partner with them. And the reason we do that... So
0: you're partnering with Toro itself or John Deere, or are you partnering somehow, or you've got your claws into the distribution network so separately? So
1: originally, it's the distribution network. And... But the secondary objective after their distribution network was to establish a relationship with those manufacturers too. Because one of the great things about our technology, which is why these dealers take it on, is it's a really complementary product to things they already sell. So it fits in with their ground care businesses really, really nicely. A foam stream unit, for example, will often be bought and used on a Toro UTV or a John Deere one. So we actually maximize sales values for their sales teams when they go and sell a foam stream unit. And critically, we fill a gap in their portfolio. As their herbicide business is being damaged by increasing legislation or increasing public demand for alternatives, we can give them a technology that they can go out and sell to that customer base. So we fit really well with these guys. And obviously, the more commercial traction we can generate through these dealers, hopefully, the more interesting we become to the manufacturers who sell through them. So we've already established relationships. Um, and was or, that
0: you getting on a plane and going out, or were you introduced, or how do, how do you do that?
1: Both. So we, we, we asked for promotion a little bit from the dealers who we were engaged with and asked them to sponsor us up into the manufacturers to talk a little bit more. We generated enough commercial traction through their dealers to become interesting anyway, so we gained their attention. And we meet them at shows and things like that around the world where we go to exhibit. So we've built relationships now with a couple of very large machinery manufacturers like Toro. And one of the things we talk about and we meet very regularly is how we can potentially collaborate further. Uh, Is there an opportunity for us to potentially do something together, and so on and so forth. And one of the things I'm really focused on at the moment is generating those kind of relationships across a number of big machinery manufacturers to potentially increase our options for sale, for product development, but also critically for exit. Because we think really the most likely way to exit will be build the company to a certain point and then sell out via trade sale to a very large machinery manufacturer who can plug it in to their own manufacturing, their own distribution, and take it to the next level. And that's why when Dan says we have a really clear exit plan, we really do. And we're already speaking to a number of the potential companies where there's a really good uh, fit for wheeling tech to be acquired by them.
0: That all sounds very good. So kind of a final question for, for Dan, no company's perfect. You've already alluded to some risks, what did you see as the principal risks or challenges when you s- invested in weeding tech?
2: Yeah, so I probably won't give you all the nine yards because it's sort of not fair. And, you know, we are mindful of the fact that in our world, a, a large proportion do not make it. That's the nature of venture capital. And the ones that do, you know, we look for all those accelerated returns. I mean, clearly, you know, we, we look for them all to do that. I mean there's I think there's kind of small company risk, right? Which which is a a small group of people doing something niche and where the macro winds can just buffer you buffet you without you having much control over. Political issues, supply chain issues, import duties, homegrown, you know, make America great again. You know, there are lots of things that you can sort of finesse and a lot that you that you that you can't diversifying your customer base. You know, we looked at that as kind of seeing they're not particularly dependent on one particular big brand or whatever. They're not particularly dependent on on one big territory. Actually, um, although I think the US is for us, you know, which is not full of, you know, not without its its challenges, as we talked a little bit before, whether uh, whether where, where the prize, you know, where the main kind of event will will happen. So you know, I would kind of summarize them that there are there are many challenges, but at the at the top is this. I'd just put them in the bucket of the the well past technology risk. You know, they've got a product, they're selling it for the right good price, good margin, and all the rest of it. It's more around this kind of if there's any big gotchas that happen. Okay, you know there are some you know serious things going on in the world at the moment. The good news is that most of the serious things that are going on in the world at the moment benefit companies like weeding tech and weeding tech itself to thrive and prosper but if councils needing to become more green don't have any money then how can councils buy the things which they needed and i mean leo's got a rental model there are sort of other ways and there's a strong roi but you know this is kind of just the summary is those macro factors of that everyone needs it but they can't buy it because of coronavirus or because of economics or political or
0: wars and this kind of stuff. I guess some of those risks are a bit generic, but yeah, it's always something to worry about. So Leo, I guess you're looking forward to the future with optimism. What do you think is the next step
1: for you? Yeah, absolutely. Hugely optimistic about the future. You know, we've come through some very challenging years over the last few years, but we've managed to significantly grow during them, which I think is a great testament to the business and its resilience. I think, you know, we managed to double our unit sales through COVID, which is a great sign. And hopefully, as the world becomes hopefully a slightly more friendly place, we can look to accelerate that growth further. So for me, the next major milestone is profitability next year. We really are looking forward to the company starting to fund itself. We want to really continue to focus on growing our municipal business. So we're going to look to grow sales and existing territories across Europe, North America and Australasia, but we're also going to focus on acquiring new dealerships in the little black spots where we currently don't have representation. So we can continue to build our sales through organic threat growth with existing dealers, but also through acquiring new dealers to target areas we can't currently hit. So very much focused on our municipal business. From a position of strength, I think as we then mentioned a little bit earlier, there are some other tremendous opportunities for Weeding tech to go after. And the residential market really is a huge prize. If you think of the size of the residential market across Europe and North America, it is incredibly significant. There's legislation preventing people from using chemical herbicides, and there's huge public appetite to use safe things in people's gardens. You know, a lot of people have kids, they have dogs, they don't want to spray harmful chemicals. They want a simple, easy to use bit of technology where they can go out and kill weeds when they want to in a really, really easy way. And we can give them a bit of technology that does that. So we're really looking forward to getting that to market in the future, but only once we've built a really strong, nice, profitable business in the municipal area where we're currently focused excellent well that all sounds
0: great and i really sincerely wish you all the best in that I, I really hope your business goes from strength to strength and i hope that dan and his investors get some nice returns too
1: <laughs> me too that's the goal and we're going to work extremely hard to make sure we deliver that
0: leo dan thank you very much for coming on today
2: thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure thank you
0: so for our second Find out about the company's session today. We are joined by Carl Walker, who is CEO and co founder of GoThrift, and Matt Jellicoe, who is CEO of One Planet Capital. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, our pleasure. So, I'm really looking forward to finding out a bit more about what we're doing. So, Carl, do you want to give us your little elevator pitch on who Go, or what
3: GoThrift is? Yeah, sure. Um, so Gofrift sells vintage and used clothing on an industrial scale. We pride ourselves on being part of the solution to um, what we call fast fashion pollution. Um, our two unique selling points are that shopping with us for clothing is more sustainable and it's more affordable. It's more sustainable because buying an item of clothing secondhand versus new and reduces its carbon footprint by up to 82%. And it's more affordable because when we're selling used clothing, we're able to offer the brands that people know and love often for a fraction of the price. Um, Yeah, so we think it offers the best of both worlds.
0: Okay. And do you want to explain a little bit about how that works in the sense of you just people send you stuff into the warehouse, Do you buy it from somewhere? How how do you source the, the, the items that you're selling?
3: Yeah, so there's a few different um, business models in our space. Some people offer um, resale as a service for big brands, which basically means doing the work or providing tech for big brands to offer re-commerce themselves. Some companies work, like you say, by asking the public to send in used clothing and they offer to sell it for them and charge a fee for doing so. These kind of business models require um, usually quite a lot of money in the outset and, and they require brand trust from the off. And that's why... Companies working towards these business models can often lose quite, quite a large amount of money in the early days. With Gothrift, we kind of didn't have the luxury of losing any money. We were bootstrapped from the off, and so it was important that we were profitable from the off as well. We buy our stock in bulk, often um, 10 tons at a time, and we buy this from sorting um, factories or what we call rag houses. They basically process stock that at some point has been donated by the public to um, chari- charities, Um, Some charities, for example Oxfam, um, have the infrastructure to sell a percentage of the clothing that's donated to them themselves, either in physical stores or on their online store. But the vast majority of charities don't have the infrastructure there to deal with the vast amount of clothing that's donated to them. And so they sell it in bulk to sorting factories. We work alongside these sorting factories to ensure that anything that's got any life left in it that's got a resale value is diverted from landfill and offered for sale again on our website. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, so so you buy it from the the charities uh, via the these sort of yeah. sorting factories or do you buy it from the sorting factories?
3: We buy it from the sorting factories, yeah. So it's not direct with the charities, it's direct with the sorting factories, yeah.
4: Okay,
0: I think we've got an idea now what you do. Matt, do you want to tell us what attracted you to GoThrift as an investment?
4: Yeah, sure, Brian. I think Carl kind of, um, yeah, I mean, he he alluded to quite a few of the Attractions of the business. I mean, I'd been very aware of the of the market in the states for a long time. I mean, there's these huge operators like ThreadUp that become you know multi billion pound companies. So it was very clear that in the US the secondhand clothing market was growing very very fast. There were quite a few companies in the UK starting to make inroads or replicate what's happened in America. As Carl said, one of the problems um, is that most of the companies that operate in the UK had gone for this you know, end-to-end consumer model. In other words, they go straight to the consumer and try and get the consumer to do something with secondhand clothes. There's nothing wrong with this. It's 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 a it's a lofty aspiration, but the problem is it's very, very expensive because you end up having to build a B2C business, costs a lot of money, you've got to build a big brand, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. You probably need a hundred thousand active end users to be sending in clothes for it to be a viable business. This is really risky it's really risky from a cash burn point of view you know lots of ways such businesses can can fail ultimately so i think when we met with go thrift what we liked about them is that they had a very matter of fact you know view on the business listen if you if uh, you know we've taken out the risk out of the model and we're going straight to kind of bulk source if you like this was one main attraction because they seemed to sort of understand the problem in the in the business model and and had a kind of a way around that I think also Carl and his team very, you know, very experienced businessmen. As as he he said at the beginning, the business was was more or less profitable from the outset. You know, so they, they you know, they're, they're, these guys were, you know, a solid team, a safe pair of hands in 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 some ways in terms of their business experience and the way they're running the business. And you know, they they were avoiding the main risk in the model, which was this kind of you know. Uh, early-stage business-to-consumer model. So I think all of those things put together made it you know, attractive, an attractive way to get into the market, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay,
0: so, so you mentioned you have a slightly distinctive business model, Carl. Clearly, one of the issues or potential issues in the market is kind of scaling up to some sort of, you know, because if you're dealing with things that unique one thing at a time, how do you actually handle that at scale?
3: Yeah, so one of the biggest challenges for any business in our space is working with um, single SKUs. The mm-hmm. fact that everything we, we, we sell is a one-off item, it, it's a unique item. If you are a retailer selling new clothing, you can have one item of clothing in 10 different colours, 10 different sizes. You can sell thousands of the same item um, from one listing with one set of images and one, um, one description. The way we overcome this is with technology. So we build in-house software that allows us um, to automate pricing and to automate photography and um, allows us to upload thousands of items every day and manage them across our own website and uh, marketplaces. The systems we have in place mean that anyone without any experience in photography or fashion can upload an item of clothing to our website in three minutes or less. Um, and this includes six detailed images, um, all measurements, and a clear description of its condition.
0: And is that something like you have a frame and you stick the bit of clothing on a frame, and it automatically shoots you, you know, in, a, in a sort of mini studio or something, it automatically shoots six photos or something like that?
3: Is it? Yeah, so we have a, a, a grading room set up that has um, all of the automated photography and, and, and the computers in there that, that our staff would, would enter the data into. Mm-hmm. It, it basically does turn into a kind of a data input role. Like I said, you don't need any experience in fashion or photography. You just need to be able to enter the data for that specific item as quickly as possible and, and like I said, allow us to get a few thousand items on every week. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and, and and scale works in two ways as well because if you've got lots of individual items on your website, how do you set up the technology so that people can find things that are you know, the right things of interest and and you know, sort of – you know, because, you know, some things you'll have be
3: stronger than others. and I think one of the main frustrations, frustrations for consumers is coming to the website and not being able to find what they want in the size they want or in the colour they want. So when we started out in um, late 2019, everything was done manually and we could only have a, a few hundred items online at any one time. So when someone landed on our store, if they wanted to find something specific, it was very unlikely that they'd find it. That's why we, as quickly as possible, automated everything we could and increased the amount of items we were putting online. We currently have seventy thousand items online, um, and we're uploading a thousand items per day. We think by this time next year we'll be upwards of three hundred and fifty thousand items on our store. That just gives a, a much greater chance of that person coming to our store and finding exactly what they need in the size they need it in. And like I said, I think that's really important.
0: And, and do you think there's some sort of critical mass thing here in terms of? presumably, as you say, if you've got 5,000 items, by the time you take the single SKU, in some ways you don't have that much. But presumably, do you think you've sort of crossed that critical threshold?
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, With the investment we've received um, this year from One Planet Capital and and Green Tribe, we've we've moved from a 10,000-square-foot warehouse to a a thirty-one thousand square foot warehouse. We've increased the staff, the amount of stock and, and the space, which means we can work a lot more efficiently, and we're very quickly being able to scale and get to the next level.
0: And, and when you say that is square foot, what, what does that translate? I think in terms of number of clothing
3: items, do you think you could fit within that? Um, within our warehouse, we think we could get to five hundred thousand items uh, um, stored in the warehouse that we're in at the moment.
0: Okay, so yeah, so, so,
3: so plenty of room for growth. The long-term plan is to get into the millions. I think Matt talked about Fred Up, who um, in 2019 did $250 million revenue. This year, I think they'll do upwards of $300 million in revenue. I think they have 33 million items listed on the USA eBay domain. And the long-term goal is is to to achieve something similar.
0: Okay. So, Matt, you have a very much an impact perspective here. Now, I, I think Carl's extolled the sort of impact, sort of you know, why, why this might be an impact investment. But in terms of you looking at this, did you sort of think, okay, it's just obvious? Or did you sort of look at, you know, how the details of the impact sort of work out?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, I mean, but basically every time we do an investment, we do, we, you know, in the investment committee, you know, reports, we'll, we'll write up quite an extensive, environmental you know impact piece i think carl's going to probably correct me here but i think 70 is it 73 percent, something like that of, of clothing ends up in landfill currently it's between 17
3: 80 percent
4: yeah so it's obviously an enormous problem and you've got you know the the, the environments but you know the, the carbon footprint of this clothing the the, the impact on water energy consumption and so on it it literally all goes to waste i think that the the reality with the industry is that there's always going to be some waste. You know, perhaps it goes direct to recycling, but I suppose what you're trying to do from an environmental point of view is bring down this 73, 80% down to something like, you know, 30%, 20%, whatever you can get to. So I I think that... You know, you're looking at solutions that fundamentally drive down this landfill problem. Because every time you you know reuse or, or get more longevity out of a piece of clothing, you know you've got the water saving, the energy saving, and the and the CO two saving. I mean, I, I wrote down, I did do my homework here before the call, and I I wrote down. um in terms of CO2, every u- reused item displaces eight kilos of CO2. So if you imagine, you know, 100,000 items sold per annum, that, that's uh, 800,000 kilograms of CO2. So just the CO2 impact is, is is pretty powerful. You've then got water savings, which are, you know, almost 100%. So in terms of water use, um, it's it's 2% for uh, recycled clothes versus, you know, a normal water consumption. And energy savings are... Uh, uh, in terms of energy, one-tenth of the amount of energy is used. So I think environmentally it's a very powerful model yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah,
0: presumably you've got an energy impact from moving it around, but you've actually got that new clothes anyway, so it's probably about the same for that. And it's just- yeah,
4: yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, if you think of a pair of jeans that are currently, I mean, again, this is stuff just I've read in the press, but an astonishing amount of water, for example, and energy is used making a pair of Levi's or whatever. And yeah. if you imagine you're just taking this, um, you know, you're just you know taking this out of the system to some extent. Uh, yeah, it, it does. The industry itself stacks up really well in terms of. Environmental credentials. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah, certainly. It, it seems like oh, it's an obvious thing to do, and yeah, I, I've seen something about the, the amount of water stone stonewashed jeans use, and it's yeah,
4: yeah, it, it, it is quite shocking, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. And, and 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 growing more cotton is the other thing. So you mentioned about other people are trying this and different business models out there. I think you know, how do you see your market position? And 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 I, I think I maybe you know, throw this at both of you in terms of the competition and you know, other people are doing, it might be different business models, but maybe consumers don't appreciate that.
3: I think personally that any stigma that was ever attached to wearing um, secondhand or used clothing has all but gone now. And and the demand for secondhand clothing is only just getting started. I think alongside it being more sustainable, as I've mentioned, it's more affordable. And with the cost of living crisis that the majority of people are facing at the moment, we're seeing more and more people come um, come to us who who are seeking value. You, you can buy new clothing that's made from sustainable fabrics, but often that's priced more expensive than a, a similar item that's not made from sustainable um, fabrics. And so we like to think that we almost remove a barrier to entry for people to shop more sustainably. People might come to us looking um, for value, but they, they are shopping more sustainably whether they whether they came for that or not and, and it all makes an impact. We've mentioned FREDUP a couple of times. They produce annual reports that kind of talk about the consumer demand for used clothing. And it's estimated that the second-hand market will grow by 127% by 2026. And that the global second-hand apparel market will grow three times faster than the global apparel market overall. FREDUP do kind of consumer... um, Surveys and and they surveyed a few thousand people back in 2016. 45% of people said they either had or would consider buying secondhand. Fast forward to 2021, and that's up to 96% of people have said they either have or they will consider buying secondhand. With everything I've talked about, more sustainable, more affordable, high quality used clothing, I don't see why in a couple of years' time that won't be 100% of people. Have or would consider buying secondhand.
0: Okay. Well, 96 is almost the same. And how do you see it in terms of people doing secondhand clothing? So, you know, because there's other people, as you as you mentioned earlier, who are doing this and, you know, maybe using different business models. Because it seems to be one of the barriers to entry a little, you know, the barriers to entry, to, there's some, but it doesn't seem that there's a huge number of barriers to entry.
3: I think um, with with the technology that, that, that we've created in-house that allows us to scale quickly, it, it is certainly a barrier to entry for some people. But also having the network of suppliers and, and people that we've worked with and built really good, solid, um, long-standing relationships with it is also a barrier to entry. Sometimes selling used clothing is considered the easy part although it's not easy the hardest part is 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 finding good quality used clothing in, in, in large volume whether that be trying to get it from the public whether it be trying to source um excess stock from big brands or whether it be the way that we do it, it the, the difficulty does come in sourcing used clothing in in, in hmm
0: and matt how did you sort of see the competitive position when you yeah sort of
4: looked at um as I said, there, there, there are there, you know there, there are there are other big operators out there you know have gone down very much the consumer route. So in other words, they're building a brand and almost telling consumers, listen, we'll we'll resell your clothes for you and you know send them to us and that kind of thing. As I said, the the, the problem with that is it's it requires you to build a big big B two C brand as well as doing everything that Go Thrift does in the background. I
0: see TV advertising for a couple yeah, of things yeah, doing and that. The, the, the,
4: and this, yes, yes, exactly. And it's you know th- this is re- re- really difficult and really risky. I think that. What what I really like about Go Thrift's position and also the industry in general, I, I like businesses where there's lots of strategic options. So in terms of where Carl is at the moment, you know, there's there's no reason why down the line that they, you know, that they, 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 you know, down the line they may decide to do B 2 C. Ultimately, they may decide to license out their software. They may decide to aggregate directly stuff from charity shop. There there are so many directions the business can go in. But what I really like about Go Thrift is they're very focused on. You know running running a sustainable business you know which isn't burning a lot of cash you know in other words you know they, they have a very clear kind of um roadmap to get to growth and profitability and and then, and then we'll see what the options are on the table but my feeling is in general in the uk market is there's a lot of operators out there that, that won't survive because the space is you know it's it's it, it, it there, there are a number of operators in the space but i think in terms of barriers to entry the biggest barrier to entry is liquidity you know if, if if you haven't got enough fundamentally if you haven't got enough buyers haven't got enough stock etc mm-hmm. etc cetera, et cetera, you know you won't survive very long and i think that that's that actually the barrier to entry is is that you know go thrift have kind of proven they've got enough liquidity to move forward now and what i really love about the business is it just does not have the burn rate that nearly all of the competitors have
0: mm-hmm. yeah if, if you if you're profitable that always gives you a few more options, particularly if yeah. Capital, I mean, I mean, I mean, obviously,
4: country. obviously, but I mean, capital's been brought into the business to to grow it ultimately. So we're not we're not so much worried about short term profitability, but it's it's nice to have, if you like, the costs and the uh, and the uh, you know the the costs and the profits kind of moving in tandem, as opposed to um you know getting too far away from each other. So, Carl,
0: as, as we know companies don't always go in a smooth direction when they start from scratch. What particular challenges have you found in terms of, sort of getting the company going or building up?
3: Um, so, yes, obviously, the single skew challenge was was the main one. And um, businesses that kind of overcome that and scale quickly, I think, will be the ones who win the race for sure. The challenges we're finding now um, is that we kind of we, we have four founders who each provided amazing skills and, and, and experience to get the business to where it is now. But we're at that point where we can't continue to keep doing it on our own. We're, we're not naive enough to think that we can do it quicker and better if we start bringing some top-level people in who have been there and, and done it and have who are better than us in certain departments of the business. People who have been there and, and, and turned businesses from, you know, $2 million revenue to $20 million revenue quickly – we're finding that it's a little bit of a minefield going out, deciding whether we bring people in house, whether we work with agencies, recruitment agencies. This is kind of the the, the current challenge we're facing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I think every every business obviously goes through that, where you've like it's you and you're doing everything too. As you say, you want to recruit people who are better than you at specific roles and sort of do yourself out with you know do yourself out the a job eventually, but by with several people doing things rather than anything else matt when you looked at uh, this what particular risks or challenges did you see ahead for the company
4: in many ways it was our probably least risky portfolio inbe- uh, investment because um carl, you know carl had been has been running businesses like this for a long time and mm-hmm. and as i said when we first looked at does it just been modest uh? <laughs> Well, what i mean is it was quite a new it was an unusual business because usually in the venture space Everybody presents you with loss making businesses that yeah. require, you know, that that's just what you look at, you know, 95% of the time. You know, so, so this was an unusual business in that, you know, there was a set of numbers here which showed a business that was, I, I can't remember if it was profitable or let's say profitable sort of break even. It was, you know, producing a bit of profit, I think, Carl, at this point. So it was, it was, a, it was an unusual business in that respect, but it was clear that it needed quite a lot of capital to grow. That was the thing. Otherwise, it was a, you know, largely a flat business. So I, I think that in many ways, it was it was unusual and perhaps less risky in that respect. I mean the, you know, it was the first time you know being being a relatively new fund. It was the first time we did a um, a lead investor role because you know that the team were really keen on it. You know they thought this is going to be a great business and we'll, we'll we'll lead it. And I think that the only, I mean, it, it's been a relatively smooth ride really. I mean there was a bit of I suppose being lead investor. There it was a new experience for us in terms of getting another fund involved and getting them over the finish line. And there was a little bit of you know jiggery-pokery there but but other than that it was a pretty um yeah pretty smooth ride
3: mm-hmm.
4: excellent well, Touch also-
0: <laughs> 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 yes we all know that yeah i said as i said businesses will have hiccups so in terms of sort of looking forward carl what do you see as the sort of expectations for what's going to happen in the next few months or maybe the next year or so
3: so I think, that, um, like Matt said, we, we had a, a very good um, first and, and second year where we, where we, we hit good revenue and, and, and we were profitable. This year's been all about um, taking on the investment and building and getting ready for the, for the next stage. I think that we'll go into the last quarter of this year and, and have our best quarter to date. And I think next year we'll see all of the the hard work and the investment and the things that we've put in place this year really start to pay off. I think coming towards the end of next year, if we achieve anywhere near the targets, and then we can start having more of the blue sky thinking, where you know we, we can we can start thinking about what's possible beyond what we're doing at the moment. Whether that be physical retail stores, whether it's setting up in in, in another country, or, or whatever kind of opportunities present themselves at the end of that. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that we're fully set up now to, to to kind of yeah make the best of everything we've put in place this year. So, Carl,
0: if people want to find out more about Go Thrift, where can they get more information about you?
3: Uh, the first place would be the website, so www.gothrift.co.uk, um, and they can also follow us on Instagram, at gothriftco.
0: We'll post links to that in the show notes, and we'll also post links to One Planet Capital's website as well. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Brian. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at harmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at harmanco.com. Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear
3: from you soon.